Hi, I'm Mark Roderman. Coming up, we'll get an update on the General Assembly's week. Governor Cooper calls for North Carolina public schools to reopen, and President Biden turns down the GOP's COVID-19 pitch. Next. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Letty. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the Lightning Round provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Reifenberg Construction, Stefan Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. It's Front Row with host Mark Rotterman. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with Carolina Journal. Communications consultant Donna King, Robert Reeves, and minority leader in the State House, and Nelson Dollar, senior advisor to the North Carolina Speaker of the House. Robert, why don't we begin with the General Assembly's week? What transpired? Well, Mark, COVID 19 dominated everything about session this week. The first bill we voted on was an actual bipartisan bill uh, that was a COVID budget bill, and it received unanimous support. We expect the governor to be able to sign that this weekend. The bill makes a number of important technical adjustments and deadline extensions from the previous COVID-19 relief package. It also appropriates $2.2 billion in federal funds that North Carolina received from the last federal COVID relief bill. Here's where the money is mostly targeted. $1.6 billion in funding is going to go through K-12 schools. $547 million will go to emergency rental assistance. $95 million will go into vaccine preparedness, which we all are concerned about at this point in time. Next week, we expect a second bill to come down. And in that bill, some of the priorities that some of the House Democrats are hoping are included will be high-speed internet expansion, small business relief grants to help businesses that are suffering from the pandemic, bonuses for teachers and public school employees that missed last year's pay raises and hazard pay for frontline public employees. Governor Cooper announced his priorities for the second bill this week. And that included teacher bonuses, which he hopes to get $2,500 in teacher bonuses, $2,000 for UNC and community college employees, $1,500 for public school employees, $30 million for additional broadband investment, and $21 million for small business assistance. Nelson, you have the floor, my friend. Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, it was a super strong start for the General Assembly this year uh, with this budget bill, really focused on the needs of families in North Carolina, um, making investments in um, rural broadband, uh, also uh, freeing up some funds in the extra credit grant so that families can access those, and providing, as, as uh, Representative Reeves said, uh, critical funding for schools, uh, moving the vaccination process forward uh, as well. And this upcoming week, what we hope to see is a consensus revenue forecast uh, that should be uh, far better than what it looked like last May. Uh, and then once we get those numbers in, uh, we'll begin to look at uh, some of the requests that the governor has made and other requests that require state funding. Uh, but we will also uh, uh, be funding the balance of about $1.8 billion that the federal government sent down in December. Donna, what struck you about this week? I think I was happiest to see the extra credit grants. Uh, families, I think a lot of families didn't realize that they could apply for state grants of about $335 to uh, help fund that online education, whether your child, uh, you need to upgrade your Wi-Fi, if you need extra supplies, you may maybe need a tutor or some extra 
extra help around the house with remote school, that $335 can really help families uh, make the ends meet when that when it comes to that kind of thing. I was also really glad to see um, uh, improvements in broadband. I know that my family, even as I speak right now, I've got three kids all on remote school. My husband is doing online meetings. And of course, I'm joining you here. Our broadband is getting stretched to the limit. And I think that's happening to a lot of families and those who live in remote areas where maybe broadband is not as accessible. Those are the things we really need to solve moving forward, whether they're in school or out of school. Mitch, put this in context, please. Well, it was great to see unanimity on this first major piece of legislation on COVID-19 relief. I don't know how long that unanimity is going to last. Representative Reeves mentioned that the governor put his priority out there of having bonuses for teachers and also university personnel. And there's already been some suggestion, at least some of the legislative leaders, that this is the type of item that ought to be part of the general discussion on the budget, not something that should be part of a COVID relief where, where bill. Where does that come in, Mitch? About $468 million on the there, bonuses? There's a lot of money involved here. Yeah. And if you if you put that money in the, in the pot and say it's going to go to teachers, that means it can't be used for other priorities, even education priorities. So I think there are some within the legislature who believe that this is the type of thing that should be part of a larger budget context, not part of the immediate emergency relief. Okay, we got to move on, Donna. There was some great news for students and for parents this week. A lot of parents and kids have been waiting for this announcement of this week. Governor Cooper sent a letter to school systems across the state urging them to um, all offer some in-school uh, learning, in-school, put kids back in the classroom, even if it's on a hybrid remote uh, format in Wake County. They're going to be doing one week in, two weeks out. But either way, it gets those kids sitting at their desks in the classroom. And that's something that a lot of families have been waiting for. Really, a lot of kids haven't been in the classroom since March last year. So this has been long awaited. Of course, there's been some opposition, some folks saying, no, we need to make sure all teachers are vaccinated before we open those classroom doors. The most vocal opponents is the North Carolina Educator, uh, Association of Educators. They've said, no, nope, we want to see vaccines for all the teachers before we open the doors. Uh, but of course, De uh, Department of um, Health and Human Services Secretary Mandy Cohen said, look, teachers are next and those essential workers are going to be vaccinated soon. And as an alternative, teachers who have risk factors for COVID complications should be offered a little bit more less exposure jobs, more remote education so that they can stay safe. They just want to make sure they give them the tools to get in there and do this. Now, you know, of course, this is a nationwide trend and we're seeing a lot of folks saying, look, we've got to get these kids back in school. The price is too high. And there was a study from UNC recently that said out of 100,000 students this fall, students and teachers, there were only 32 transmissions on campus and zero transmissions from child to adult. So that was really encouraging news that led paved the way for this announcement. Mitch, your take on this plan. Yeah, I think it's also responding to what the public has been saying. There's been some recent polling that shows that uh, people were not quite that satisfied with the way that Governor Cooper has gone about school reopening. A lot of people supported his plans initially in response to the pandemic. Last spring, now that we're getting to the point where we're almost a year into dealing with this pandemic, people are saying, look, the evidence is showing that kids are safe at school. I think uh, one of the things that we're going to see is whether it's within the next couple of weeks or by the end of February, 
February, beginning of March, a lot of the damage has been done. We're going to be seeing impacts in the schools of the kids being out and having only remote learning. That's going to be something that's going to play out over the next couple of years. That's going to be a headache, I think, for the General Assembly in deciding how to fund all the remediation that's going to need to take place. Nelson, the General Assembly did weigh in in the House and Senate on bringing these kids back to school, didn't they, with legislation? Uh, they did. There's a bill in the Senate that uh, has moved through there, uh, pushing for the A option, making it mandatory for uh, schools to reopen. And to Mitch's point, uh, the remedi on the remediation, the learning loss that has already occurred, uh, Speaker Moore announced this week uh, a plan to use some of the federal funding and other funding that may be available to the local school systems to have a summer school program and to go ahead and be thinking through that, what the parameters would be, what requirements are, and have that as an option all across the state for kids to be able to catch up uh, for all the learning that they have lost. Donna, wrap this up in about 40 seconds, please. I think that's exactly the point. That's the challenge moving forward. Could we? Can we really put all that toothpaste back in the tube? There's so many uh, kids who either just never showed up, never enrolled for class. Um, a lot of those kids are going to need help. Kids who really struggled with broadband or learning online, they're going to have a lot of remediation coming ahead. But one of the real takeaways from this is I think it's gotten a lot of families, a lot of parents off the bench when it comes to public education. They're looking at new way. You know, they're looking at private schools, they're looking at charter schools, and they're looking at really engaging more in their local public schools. So if, if nothing good came out of this, that's one thing. A lot of parents are really in the thick of it now. Okay, I'm going to change gears. Mitch, talk to us about the COVID relief package that's working its way through Congress. Well, President Biden wants a plan that would be about $1.9 trillion. And you re may remember that from the Obama years, Republicans were also, uh, often criticized for being obstructionists and having no plans of their own. But this time around, there was a group of 10 senators, including North Carolina's Tom Tillis, who came up with a plan, smaller plan, about $618 billion, so about a third of the size of the package that President Biden wants. It had many of the same emergency measures that the president wants, but it left out some of the things that uh, some would consider not to be necessarily part of emergency relief, like a $15 an hour minimum wage or another bailout of state and local governments, including the ones that really don't need the help from the federal government. There was a long meeting early in the week between the president and these Republican senators, but no resolution. The, uh, the president saying he, he wasn't on board with their plan. If the Democrats in Congress try to go forward with President Biden's plan, it would require the procedural move called reconciliation because they would need that to be able to pass this in the Senate with only 51 votes. So it'll be interesting to see what happens on this front. I think this is going to be something that shows that it's going to be tough to get things passed over the next couple of years. Nelson, is there a risk of too much stimulus, my friend? I mean, this increases the debt by 6.5% just with a signature. That's right, Mark. I mean, if you go back to the second quarter of last year, you had the highest debt to GDP ratio in the history of the country, higher than at any time uh, toward the end of World War II. And that is a concern that we need to keep in mind moving forward. And it's also how you spend the money. So, for example, uh, we continue to talk about infrastructure needs uh, across this country. We've yet to do an infrastructure bill, and that would probably be far more um, uh, important to the economy to get 
uh, people back to work. The lagging indicator right now is job growth. That's been very flat. The, the, the uh, numbers announced on Friday were only around 49,000 new jobs created. Uh, in, in January, we're seeing um, um, a flattening out of job growth. And Congress really needs to focus on that issue. Robert, do we need to federalize the minimum wage? What's the impact on small businesses, my friend? Well, I think raising the minimum wage is always something that you've got to look at about how it's going to affect small businesses. But really, the other part about it is how does it affect those employees? And I think that's the balancing act that we've got to figure out how to make, because when we talk about raising the minimum wage, obviously anything that increases costs, a business is going to be against generally. But on the flip side, we haven't moved the minimum wage in several years. And we're at a situation now where we've got people who are already struggling with unemployment and then not to be able to get any kind of wage increases may be problematic. Donna, critics say some of this money is a bailout for the states that are mismanaged. I think there's $350 billion for the states. Yeah, a lot of folks are calling this a blue state bailout. Uh, some states, California, New York, uh, Illinois, some states that really have been accused of financial mismanagement over the years, uh, suddenly you're going to get this this. Uh, bailout to cover their costs because when you have a crisis like this and you don't have a rainy day fund uh, like North Carolina has, then you really run into problems. And that's where a lot of the objection to this uh, blue state bailout, they're calling it, is coming from. But, you know, it's one of those things that uh, as as Congress considers these bills, they're really going to have to look at this. Plus, if we bring back the deduction for the SALT tax, that's something that will, uh, if, if Biden reinstates being able to deduct state and local taxes, that gives kind of a blank slate for states to raise state and local taxes in some of those states. We'll see even more new neighbors coming down to places like North Carolina. Close this out in about 20 seconds. Will this be done by reconciliation, Mitch? It very well could be, Mark. And I think one of the other important pieces to keep in mind is that if there were not a new presidential administration, we might not even see a package like this right now because the last COVID relief bill became law on December 27th, not too long, more than a month ago. And so a lot of that money that was approved in late December hasn't even been spent yet. So some people are saying, why do we have another relief bill right now? Okay, Nelson, let's talk about the pushback, the bipartisan pushback on some of these executive orders on energy, Western Democratic governors are, are not liking what they're seeing. That's right, Mark. So uh, out in the oil patch, as you might imagine, Republican governors and places like Oklahoma and Texas um, are very concerned about the moratorium that uh, President Biden has placed by executive order on new uh, leases of oil and gas rights on uh, public lands and in public water. So this uh, also impacts the Gulf of um, Gulf of Mexico drilling, and that brings in Democrat governors like Louisiana and uh, other governors uh, out in the West, like uh, governors in Colorado, New um, Nevada. New Mexico is a particularly interesting case uh, where the governor is being, Democrat governor is being pushed between uh, loyalty to the party and uh, what is important for their budget. A third of New Mexico's budget uh, is derived from the revenue from oil and gas leases. So well over a billion dollars of their state's education budget comes from the revenue from oil and gas. You also had this week uh, four uh, members of Congress in Texas uh, who joined with uh, a number of Republicans out in that uh, uh, part of the country uh, to uh, try to urge 
uh, Biden to have this uh, moratorium only on a temporary basis and not make it uh, a, a permanent uh, feature. Because if you think about it, uh, certainly uh, you can grow solar, you can grow wind, but okay. if you're a state, your revenues uh, are far more on these commodities like oil and gas. Robert, what's the impact at the pump to the consumer, to the average family? Well, I think that it's going to be an impact initially at the pump because of the fact that we are dependent on oil and gas. That's where our whole economy has been going on. That's what we've been going on for energy sources. What the balance is and what I think that this administration is going to have to figure out is how do you balance the need to reduce our consumption of these type of oil and gas and things like that and fossil fuels and how do you then turn around and get to the cleaner energy that we know that we're going to need at some point in time and I think ultimately there's always going to be that tension. Donna wrap this up. I mean not wrap this up way in here please. Sure, of course well energy independence is such an important part of how our economy will move forward and I think that this is perhaps a step in the wrong direction, according to a lot of people who are concerned about those prices at the pump. You know, between uh, gas prices and interest rates, that's how you keep the majority of the American public operating and happy and trucks moving and keeping prices down at the grocery store. And all of those things are really important. But in addition to that lever, a lot of these states uh, are relying on that, those, that lease money to fund very needed things like education. So there's lots of pieces to that. And it feels a little bit like the, they didn't dig deep enough to see the impact uh, that this would have. Mitch, I see that the OPEC uh, countries are already cutting, cutting back on production. Yeah, and that's going to have a major impact on what we're talking about here. For me, the interesting piece is the political angle. Both major parties, of course, are having debates about where to go in the future. And this is a, a case of the Democrats having moderate, business-friendly Democrats versus the progressive Democrats who say, we don't care about that industry at all. We want an end to the fossil fuel industry. That's going to create a fight among some of the folks within the Democratic Party. Coming right back to you, what's the underreported story of the week? Well, this has to do with a change in the assumed rate of return on investments in the state pension plan. And I know that some people's eyes are, have already glazed over, but this is important because we're talking about a plan that's $116 billion, the ninth largest among the states. There are 950,000 public sector workers and retirees who depend on these, uh, these pension investments. And what just happened is the assumed rate of return went down from 7% to 6.5% percent. It's the third time in four years that that rate is lowered. Why should we care? Well, this is the type of thing that uh, the state is dependent on having this rate of return to determine what amount of money needs to go into that fund. If you have a high rate of return, overly high, that means that the pension fund could chase riskier investments. It also means the potential for long-term funding problems. No one wants to see that. So seeing a more reasonable, realistic rate of return is better. Donna, underreported, please. So underreported for me, we're already seeing approval ratings on President Biden's first, I guess, month, not even month or so. He's running about 49% approval rating uh, in a Quinnipiac poll, and about 16% of people are not quite sure what they think just yet, but a 49% approval rating for President Biden. Was that 39 or 49? Correct me on that. 
Uh, 49% approval rating and 16% unsure. I think it's interesting. I think uh, there was just so much action coming out of the White House in the first uh, few days, lots of executive orders, and a lot of folks were a little either alarmed or encouraged, depending on where you stood, on what they saw coming out of those signatures. The real question is, uh, when he tries to put some of those policies through Capitol Hill, how much success will he have? Because an executive order and getting something through a split Congress are very different. Underreported, Robert, please. Underreported for me is going to be that the Census Bureau announced that since the data will, in fact, be delayed four months. And the reason that's going to be in a problem is because that's going to delay a lot of these redistricting plans that you have throughout the country, which, of course, is going to change the balance of what we're looking at in the House of Representatives and Congress. 24 states overall probably will be affected by this pretty significantly. You have two states who are Virginia and New Jersey, who actually have elections legislatively this year, who are probably going to have to run on old maps, which means they'll then have to turn around and run on some other maps. Six states have constitutional redistricting deadlines. Five have statutory redistricting deadlines. Thirteen have constitutions which require redistricting to happen this year. So what are folks going to do? Great catch. Underreported, please, Nelson. Yes, President Biden's um, treatment of traditional allies. He spoke this week at the State Department, again, uh, reaffirming his um, uh, desire to have multilateral, uh, better relations with allies around the world. And yet he started out in the administration, of course, canceling the Keystone XL pipeline without any consultation with the Canadian government. Uh, he's made moves on the border, uh, the southern border with Mexico with respect to immigration policy without consulting uh, the Mexican government. Uh, on a more worldwide basis, he signed uh, an America by America first um, uh, executive order uh, that is in violation of the World uh, Trade Organization uh, policies and, and guidelines, and again, uh, without consulting with allies. And then, of course, most uh, critically in East Asia, uh, our allies in Japan, South Korea, uh, Australia, the Philippines, uh, and most importantly, Taiwan are waiting to see what Biden will actually do, how strong he will be uh, in uh, protecting democracies, particularly the one most endangered right now, Taiwan. Okay, let's go to the lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? What's up is the economy, and this could have an impact on President Biden's $1.9 billion COVID-19 plan. The uh, Congressional Budget Office saying it now expects a rapid recovery, with the economy being back to pre-pandemic levels by the middle of 2021, and labor for, uh, participation rate back to the pre-pandemic level by 2022. So that's some good news. What's down? Certificate of need laws in North Carolina. For folks who don't know what this is, this is a state government permission slip for new hospital facilities facilities or major medical equipment. Critics have been trying to get rid of this thing for a long time. And in an event uh, scheduled by my uh, employer, the John Locke Foundation this week, a Blue Cross executive said Blue Cross might be ready to support repeal of certificate of need laws. Now, he later walked back those comments, but that could be a, a positive sign for those who want to get rid of what we sometimes call a con. Donna, who's up and who's down this week? Um, I got to agree with Mitch. The economy, a study out shows that uh, January saw a 58% growth in the service industry. And that's great news coming out of a pandemic, of course. Now, real estate and manufacturing, they led that report. They had the most growth in January. The lowest was restaurants and entertainment, as we might expect, given uh, the number of shutdowns. But I think okay. what this really speaks to is low interest rates and how resilient American business owners and consumers are. Okay. Who's up? My who's down is go ahead, go ahead. Shopping. 
Sure. Cary Shopper. So I don't know if you remember Cary Town Center. It's been a mall there forever. It officially closed its doors last weekend, but there are brighter days ahead. Uh, of course, now uh, Epic Games there in Cary has, is purchasing that mall and they're turning it into their global okay. headquarters. Okay, we got to move. Who's up and who's down quickly this week, Robert? Vaccine providers are up. They've made tremendous progress in ramping up vaccine delivery. What's down are the vaccination supply. We need more supply because we've gotten 100% out there. So Johnson & Johnson, let's hit the road. Okay. Nelson, who's up and who's down this week? Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin is up with a five-year extension of the New START treaty without having to give any concessions to the United States. He's also jailed his top political opponent, Alexei uh, Navalny, and uh, he has had success with his vaccine, Sputnik V. Uh, who is down? Uh, semiconductor chips. Uh, these are the chips that run everything from hair dryers and smartphones to computers to cars. Uh, the shortage of these chips is going to weigh on the economy worldwide. Uh, we already saw this week uh, Ford Motor Company has announced a number of um, canceling a number of uh, work shifts uh, at their plants and work uh, slowdowns because of a lack of computer chips. Okay, headline next week, Mitch. Trump impeachment blocks significant action on other congressional business. How long does it go on? Uh, I hope it doesn't go on very long, but uh, you never know. With the Democrats in control of the Senate now, they could make it last as long as they want. Headline next week, Donna. Uh, COVID vaccine will be coming to your local pharmacy in North Carolina. It will be available starting next week at Walgreens in neighboring South Carolina and Virginia. CVS will be carrying that COVID vaccine. So you have to go to their websites to sign on, I think. You'll have to make an appointment just like you do when you go through the State Department, State Health Department. Uh, but of course, having it there on the local corner pharmacy is going to be huge for increasing the number of vaccinated people. Robert, headline next week, my friend. Governor Cooper signs bipartisan COVID-19 relief package into law. Nelson, headline next week. Impeachment, gavel to gavel coverage. Let me ask you this. Do you think that because uh, uh, Roberts is not presiding the chief justice that this is constitutional? I don't think it's constitutional, but again, I, I'm not sure that the Supreme Court would ever actually weigh into that question. I think that they want to let the political branches sort this out. Okay, we've got to run. That's it for us. Great job, panel. Thanks for watching. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Letty. Additional funding provided by... Funding for the lightning round provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.